This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today. And our guest in the studio today is going to be Dr. Kevin Felice. Dr. Felice has been on uh, before, and he is the chief of the Department of Neuromuscular Medicine at the Hospital for Special Care. He's a director of the Neuromuscular Center. And we want to talk to him. A lot has been in the press lately about neuromuscular disease. Um, We have heard a lot about new treatments for Lou Gehrig's disease that we want to talk to him about. And we want to talk to him a little bit about uh, the story of Charlie Gard, who is in the press, who has a mitochondrial disease, and uh, often that affects the neuromuscular system. So we're going to chat with Dr. Felice about that, and obviously we're going to take all of your questions. I'm going to give you the phone numbers now, and I will periodically throughout the show at 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 966 WTIC. This day in medicine, July 8, 1776, Dr. Dominique Jean Larray was born. Dr. Larray was a French military surgeon who invented the field hospital, something that we have really become familiar with, especially with what has gone on in Iraq and Afghanistan, and really the decentralization of medical care for wounded soldiers. He also, when I read this, it caught my eye that he also invented the flying ambulance. Now, the flying ambulance in the 1700s were horse-drawn, okay, because we know they didn't have helicopters, but they called them flying ambulances because they can get to the scene so quickly. He also espoused using maggots to treat wound infections. Now, one of the things our regular listeners know is that we like to take things that were done in the past and apply them currently. And it's very interesting that that's been a known fact that maggots have a certain enzyme in their digestive system that cleans wounds. And for years, people have been trying and various pharmaceutical companies to try and get that enzyme into some type of application. But the best wounds in terms of clean and not having pus and being really a clean wound and able to be healed are those that had maggots in them, oddly enough. And you would see that uh, really on uh, people who were homeless uh, and had wounds in New York City. There were many papers written about that in modern times. So anyhow, Dr. Dominique Jean Larry really brought that to light. Obesity rates are rising, not only in the rich but in the poor. When we look at various nations, we we know that, we've talked about it on the show, is there's such a rapid rise in obesity worldwide. But that rise is actually faster in children now. They found that 
it tripled in youth and young adults when looking at countries like China, Brazil, and Indonesia. I mean, just to get a feel for this, 10% of the world's population is obese. 107 million children and 603 million adults are obese. This is a problem across the board. And we talk about this a lot from the standpoint of health care costs. Everybody's worried about who's going to pay for health care in the United States and our tax dollars going to health care. But there's obviously a bigger issue in that we need to take care of ourselves and those costs will take care of themselves. And we've talked often about how often the obesity rate affects heart disease, dementia, stroke, big things that cost a lot of money. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about were cancer costs. There was an interesting article I read this week about how cancer costs are rarely discussed between physician and patient. Now, one of the reasons is many times the doctors don't know what it costs. I mean, we, we don't spend a lot of time, and maybe for the best, trying to figure out how much a drug costs or how much a treatment costs. But what happens is that cancer patients are three times more likely to have to declare bankruptcy than people who have not had cancer and have other illnesses because of the cost. Not everything is paid for. And in that type of system, you're going to have to take on some of those costs, and many people have to declare bankruptcy and really lose a lot of their personal assets. So as a patient, it behooves you to address the issue and maybe bring the issue up, not necessarily with your physician because they may redirect you to a social worker or someone who really specializes in looking at the economics behind cancer and behind the treatment of whatever type of cancer you're suffering from. But the economic burden of neurologic disease uh, was another thing I looked at. Basically, in the United States, just neurologic disease costs about $800 billion every year. When I looked at the breakdown of that, it's very interesting. The highest cost is Alzheimer's disease and dementia, $243 billion. And we know that number is growing. We know the number of people suffering from dementia is growing. Low back pain is $177 billion to the United States in annual costs. Stroke, $110 billion. Traumatic brain injury, $86 billion. And migraine headaches, $78 billion. And some of those conditions, you might say, well, geez, migraine, you don't require hospitalization. But so many people are unable to go to work. And that's part of the economic burden that gets added in. And migraine is among the biggest causes of that uh, with lost work. So everybody's been reading a lot about uh, Charlie Gard. Charlie Gard is a soon-to-be 11-month-old child in England who has a rare mitochondrial disease. This has raised a lot of questions of medical ethics, and obviously politicians are weighing in. Uh, religious leaders are lay, weighing in in terms of uh, our Holy Father. And there's a lot to be figured out here because mitochondrial diseases are a wide classification. And since we have Dr. Felice here, we're going to be chatting with him when we get back about this and about neuromuscular disease in general. We're going to talk about the wonderful work being done at the hospital for special care at their neuromuscular center. So let me give you the phone numbers again here at Healthy Rounds are 860 
522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we are happy to have in the studio my good friend, Dr. Kevin Felice. Dr. Felice is a neurologist who specializes in neuromuscular disease. He serves as the chief of the Department of Neuromuscular Medicine at the Hospital for Special Care in New Britain. He's director of the Neuromuscular Center at the Hospital for Special Care, and he's also a professor of neurology at the University of Connecticut. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here. Um, all right, let's let's start out. Can kind of give our audience a little bit of an introduction into what neuromuscular disease is and a little bit about what makes the center at the Hospital for Special Care so special. Sure, Tony. Uh, neuromuscular diseases are those that affect the lower motor unit or peripheral motor system or sensory system. And and basically, there are any diseases that uh, have an effect on the nerves and muscles that we use every day uh, to move around, to swallow, to speak, to breathe. Um, disorders can affect the cell bodies of these nerves. It can affect the nerves themselves. Uh, they can affect the neuromuscular junction, or uh, they can be primary disorders of muscle. There are many hundreds of different types of neuromuscular disorders. Our center specializes in the evaluation and diagnosis of patients with disorders that affect these parts of their nervous system. Uh, and uh, through our affiliation with the Muscular Dystrophy Association, the ALS Association, and the Hereditary Neuropathy Foundation, we run a very comprehensive program for not only evaluation, but for care, treatment, and clinical trials. Kevin, we were talking about the economics, and I know uh, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, the ALS Association, really support the care to some degree. Um, how does that work for someone who has one of those qualifying diseases? Um, what level of support do they provide? Well, uh, MDA has been doing this for many years, Tony, and uh, they certify uh, approximately 150 centers in the United States. Uh, when I say certify, they uh, uh, choose centers that are devoted and have expertise not only in diagnosis and caring, but also in research and clinical trials. Uh, they really try to um, uh, establish centers of excellence where all of the centers are practicing uh, very high-quality um, uh, high evidence-based uh, medicine to care for patients in a coordinated manner so that patients in Los Angeles are getting the same care that patients in Boston and Hartford are. And we kind of work together as a network uh, in that regard. Do they provide funds for these patients? Um, they do, Tony. They provide funds mostly to the institutions to help defray the co the incredible okay. cost of caring for patients. Many of the services, Tony, that we provide, for instance, uh, uh, respiratory therapy, uh, 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 social work, um, dietitian, 
uh, do not receive reimbursement from health insurers, and yet these are required services for a multidisciplinary clinic and for patients with these disorders. So, yes, they, they help in that regard. They help defray the salary cost for having these services on hand for patients. Yeah, I always find that interesting that those are not paid for by insurance companies, yet they're crucial, especially the respiratory component. Um, so it, it's got to be a big piece of the care that ALS and MDA are paying for. Absolutely, Tony, and the social work. I mean, the fact that we have a social worker working with all our patients is is a gift, really, uh, and that's because of MDA and the ALS Association's uh, help. Uh, without that, we would not be able to justify, you know, financially to to pay for these services. So, uh, it they they've been a tremendous help to us. Uh, I think we'll take the first call. We have Dan on the line. Dan uh, is on the line and wants to talk a little bit uh, about uh, post-polio. Is he? Uh, let's see if we got him. If for some reason it's not picking up. Okay, that's not – for some reason it's not picking up in here. So anyhow, he wanted to talk a little bit about post-polio. So why don't we talk a little bit about post-polio? Um, post-polio syndrome, something we started seeing after people had polio and uh, it was felt that it might be new weakness in people who had polio, but really hasn't been. We don't see that many patients with it anymore. No, I, I mean, each year that goes by, Tony, we see fewer and fewer patients just because the last epidemic was in the 1950s and um, – uh, most of those patients that survived, uh, whether or not they were left with any weakness, um, um, you know, they're, they're fewer and fewer each year uh, just based on longevity. Uh, however, post-polio syndrome still affects patients uh, that have had polio, and, and it can be very disturbing. Uh, many of these patients can go many, many years after the illness doing fine and then in their later years start developing slowly progressive weakness, which almost appears like a slowly progressive form of motor neuron disease or ALS. Uh, but in fact, it is what we call post-polio syndrome or progressive muscular atrophy. One of the things I guess we always hear about and is uh, fundraising and how does all the fundraising work? I know recently you've been the beneficiary of the Travelers Tournament, things like that. How, how does that help overall and how does that all carried out? Well, the, the Travelers uh, uh, um, have, have been extremely uh, helpful and generous to us through, their, uh, through, our, uh, through being a beneficiary of the uh, tournament. Uh, we, we recently finished a very exciting tournament. Uh, and, and this all began for us uh, last year with uh, our meeting, uh, Mr. Jay Fishman, who was the former CEO of Travelers, who unfortunately passed two weeks after the tournament last year, uh, dying of complications of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, he was instrumental in, in meeting us and promoting our cause. Tony, each year we care for 250 patients with Lou Gehrig's disease. We estimate there are approximately 300 in the state, so we're a very high-impact center. Mr. Fishman realized that when he met us last year and decided that he was going to use uh, the traveler's um, uh, donations made through the uh, tournament to help us uh, with our clinic, with our services, and help raise awareness of ALS. We're very, very fortunate to be associated with the Travelers Organization. 
A quick question. So we talked a little bit before uh, our interview about mitochondrial disease and the story of Charlie Gard, uh, where there's this debate over and argument over whether or not uh, his respirator should be disconnected. Can you talk a little bit about mitochondrial disease and, and how that affects the neuromuscular system? Sure, Tony. Fortunately, mitochondrial diseases are rare. Um, uh, they can present in infant uh, childhood or adulthood. Uh, uh, I'll take you back to Bio 101 for all of you that, that took the course. Um, you know, mitochondria or, or organelles in each cell of our body, except red blood cells, uh, if you remember, and they, they have their own ATP, and, uh, excuse me, they have their own DNA, and they produce approximately 37 uh, genes out of our 30,000 genes. So it's an independent kind of organelle that uh, functions to produce energy. It, uh, you remember it called the powerhouse of the cell. And many organs that require uh, large amounts of energy uh, require this organelle, uh, including brain and muscle. And therefore, any defect in this mitochondria or this organelle can cause massive changes in brain function and muscle function and uh, certainly contributing to what we hear about this this infant with uh, mitochondrial myopathy. Is there, a, is there a treatment for it? I mean, they're talking about experimental treatments. How, how would you replace that? Tony, I, you know, I'm not privy with uh, the experimental treatments that uh, they're mentioning. Uh, there are certain cocktails that can be used to promote mitochondrial function, coenzyme QA, L-carnitine, other types of uh, medications and supplements which seem to improve mitochondrial function. Unfortunately, there have been no true evidence-based clinical trials uh, showing uh, improvement in uh, clinical brain or muscle function uh, with these agents. Well, it sounds like it's still an area that needs a lot of research. Uh, we're going to be taking a short break. I'm going to give you the phone numbers again, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. That was Nickelback in the background. So everyone should know that Nickelback, the band Nickelback, will be at Mohegan Sun on July 13th. That's coming up this week. And Ed Sheeran is coming. Now, that's going to be two nights um, at the arena at Mohegan Sun uh, where you see so many great performances. I know they have Lady Gaga coming up, uh, Katy Perry. So a lot of big names at the Mohegan Sun. So if you get a chance, get over there. The slots are hot. Everybody tells me they're all making money on that. So um, just head over to Mohegan Sun and have an enjoyable time. Today my guest is Dr. Kevin Felice, who's the chief of the Department of Neuromuscular Medicine and a professor of neurology at the University of Connecticut. Uh, we figured out how to work the phones here, so we're going to try and get Dan, who has been very patient. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. Lessie. Hi. All right, pretty good. So you have a question for Dr. Felice. Yeah, yeah. I've got I had polio in 48, and I'm 70 years old now. I've been experiencing the post-polio, you know, probably started 25 years ago. But I was wondering, is there any medications uh, to slow the progression? Has anything like that been developed or to, you know, help in any way or is it 
no therapies or treatments. Well, I think you raised an interesting question of progression. I mean, progression is age, isn't it, uh, Kevin? I mean, really, you've you've done well, Dan. Okay, yeah. you're 78, so let's go with that one, Kevin. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, to answer your question simply, no, there there's n- nothing that we know of that slows the progression of post polio syndrome or progressive muscular atrophy, and it, it is what people believe to be an age-related disorder in patients with previous either paralytic or, uh, or, or non-paralytic polio in which there was originally a loss of motor cells. The existing motor cells in the spinal cord had to take over the function, so to speak, of the ones that were lost. And they seemed to function well for a period of years until patients get older and uh, then they uh, they become so-called stressed and uh, they they don't function as well as far as innervating muscle fibers or supporting muscle fibers and and therefore there's a slow progression of weakness in patients who had previously had polio and that that's the theory behind the disorder. Unfortunately, we don't know uh, how to how to stop that from happening. Dan, thank you for the call. Okay, we appreciate you. it. Next call is uh, Bernie from Weathersfield. Bernie, you have a question. Yes, uh, I had polio in 1944, and I was completely paralyzed, and I came back somewhat. And uh, now I'm 84, and the past maybe 10 years I've been growing weaker and weaker, and now it's almost I can't hardly walk. Uh, what I'm questioning is, um, is there anything I can do to help myself? The doctor, I have heart trouble, too, and I take these uh, pills, you know, the satins or whatever they call them. Yeah. And when I started taking them, when I had my first heart attack, I started getting weaker when I took them. I was wondering if the, all these pills that I take for heart trouble can be part of it. All right. I'm going to hang up on you, and then we're going to answer your question. Thanks Thank for you. calling, Bernie. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, you know, one uh, could... Uh, look at your case and say, well, it looks, sounds like a case of post-polio, but I, I would make sure that you get a neurologic evaluation and ensure that there's not something else going on in addition to maybe developing some weakness from previous polio. Statins can certainly cause muscle problems. It's very rare for that to happen. I want to reiterate that because they're, su- they're very important drugs for our cardiovascular health. Uh, however, they can in some cases cause uh, neuromuscular problems, and the best doctor to evaluate that would be a neurologist. So please get a neurologic evaluation. Kevin, let's move on. Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. It, it's interesting that it's become so synonymous with Lou Gehrig's disease. Somebody stopped me the other day and asked me, and they said, did they name it Lou Gehrig's disease because they didn't know what it was till Lou Gehrig had it? And I had explained to them that, no, they knew it was amyotrophic lateral sclerosis that he had, but he's become so synonymous with the illness. Can we talk a little bit about that? And especially, I want to get into this exciting new treatment for ALS. Sure, Tony. Um, as you know, uh, about four to six weeks ago, the FDA approved uh, only the second medication ever FDA approved for, or for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, the first one was in 1995 called Riliazole, which is a glutamate blocker. And we've gone, uh, uh, since that time, 
with not a second medication despite uh, 20 to 30 very, very important clinical trials that have occurred during that time frame. So uh, recently a medication called Adaravone, uh, it's an IV medication, was approved by the FDA after being studied in two large uh, phase three trials in Japan. Uh, and uh, it was approved, and the, this medication will be available uh, to patients with ALS uh, in uh, late August, early September. So let's talk about it. What are our expectations with the drug? Tony, I can only tell you what uh, the phase three trial uh, results were. First of all, the drug has only been studied in Japan. Uh, it's kind of interesting that the FDA approved a medication that was not studied in the United States. Uh, there were many researchers in the United States that did not feel that that w was going to happen, but in fact it did. The pivotal study, uh, which uh, took place in 2011 20 to 2014, uh, included uh, over 130 Japanese patients with early-onset ALS and very good breathing capacities. So they were early in the course of their disease. Uh, what the After six months of treatment with this IV medication, which, by the way, logistically is very difficult, and we could talk about that, uh, patients who were on medication had a slower rate of progression uh, using a functional rating scale called the ALS-FRS. They had a slower rate of, rate of uh, progression compared to patients uh, taking placebo. Uh, and it was significant, uh, Tony, and based on that information, the FDA approved the medication, and as I said, it will be available to patients with ALS soon. Well, let me ask you the question. You raised the issue that these are all patients who had early symptoms of ALS. Are we going to restrict the use to people who have early ALS, or is it going to be applicable to those who have more advanced um, disease? The uh, FDA has approved it for all patients with ALS, and we will be uh, uh, give uh, we will be prescribing it for any patient with ALS who um, uh, does not have an allergy to the medication and who uh, is uh, uh, who desires to be on it. Um, so uh, yes, we will be uh, for for all ALS patients, Tony. Kevin, so you will be a center that has this available and able to administer it? Because it's not that easy, right? Right. Uh, the problem with the drug is it's given as an IV. It's fairly safe. It's been studied in Japan for many years. It was used as a post-stroke treatment. It's an antioxidant. It, uh, it's believed to uh, reduce free radical toxicity. Um, and so it has a very good safety profile. The problem is logistically it has to be given at a IV infusion center. It has to be given uh, half of the month. So patients have to come into the infusion center uh, uh, 10 to 14 days out of each month and get a one-hour infusion. They're not admitted to the hospital. They're not admitted to the infusion center. They basically come in for that one hour and then go home and then they come in the next day. And they do this for the rest of their life. Um, and, and so it, logistically, it's going to be difficult because, as you know, Tony, ALS is a, is a debilitating condition. And many patients are wheelchair dependent or are dependent on some type of walking device and certainly on other people for their care. So 
Uh, we're not sure how it's all going to shake out, but we're going to try our hardest to get patients on this medication. Kevin, it, it sounds at least hopeful for an illness that we've had no hope for um, for a very long period of time. Um, for people to get in touch, now people are hearing this and they want to tell their friends about it. Um, the best phone number for contact with you and the folks at the hospital for special care? Sure. Um we take, uh, fortunately take care of many in, people in the state of Connecticut with ALS. However, you can certainly contact the ALS Association of Connecticut, and I don't have their number right on me. However, you can get that online, um, and you can certainly call uh, uh, my assistant, Sharon, at 860-612-6305. Uh, she will have uh, information for you as well. We will be registering patients uh, uh, within the next few weeks and uh, uh, getting them uh, uh, going through the insurance paperwork. Uh, we have not heard from Medicare or insurers about whether it will be covered or how much will be covered. We're hopeful. We're hopeful that it will be covered, but we uh, still do not have that information yet. Very helpful information for all of our patients with neuromuscular disease. You're listening to Healthy Rounds. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be right back. We're on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds in our last segment with Dr. Kevin Felice, who is the Chief of Neuromuscular Medicine at the Hospital for Special Care. We're enjoying our conversation. We have a call from Roman. Roman, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello, doctor. Okay, can you lower the radio in the back? Can you lower the radio, Sandy? What do you got? Okay, um, probably nine years ago, I, I came down with malignant melanoma. Okay. And it was stage 3C. Mm -hmm. And uh, they gave me a drug for a solid year that uh, I took reverently, and it killed me. They were injections. Okay. Of interferon. Big time. Okay. And, uh, I made the regime for a year, and then I started getting numbness in my feet and in my legs. Now it's in my hands and parts of my arms, and my muscles died above my knees. There are, you know, there's no strength anymore, and I have mm -hmm. a hard time walking. And it feels like I walk up Mount Everest every time I walk. Okay. And I want to know: is there something new? Sure. That can help. All right. All right, I'm going to hang up, and then we're going to talk about that. So, okay. Kevin, interesting question about chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, um, which we've seen for many years, um, and in this case with malignant melanoma. Um, interferon causing it? There have been some cases of interferon associated with autoimmune, you know, CIDP-like uh, neuropathies, and in this particular case, I'm not sure what the timing is in regards to the interferon and, and the patient's neuropathy and whether this is perineoplastic, indirectly related uh, to, uh, to the cancer, um, uh, related to something else, uh, related to another chemotherapy agent or certainly some other uh, cause of neuropathy. And I, I, in cases like this, certainly I, I would really uh, – uh, recommend strongly that a patient be evaluated by a neuromuscular specialist and 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 go through the testing and and 
make sure that uh, it's not, first of all, something treatable. Uh, some of the inflammatory disorders are treatable disorders. That's important. And two, to identify the etiology. It may be that it was to do with uh, chemotherapy or uh, an effect of the cancer, but there are many, many causes of neuropathy, and so really a good neuromuscular evaluation is recommended. Chemotherapy-induced neuropathies, uh, you know, we've seen them from vincristin, adriamycin, um, you know, cisplatinum, typically get better after they're off the chemotherapy uh, in general? They typically do, Tony. It depends how severe the neuropathy is. Certainly, if it is quite severe, patients may have some improvement but will be left with some residual weakness and numbness, especially in their hands or feet. Um uh, but but you're correct. I mean, for the most part, after the chemotherapy, patients do improve. Um, you know, I've had a few recent patients with Charcot-Marie Tooth disease and inherited neuropathy that have had to undergo chemotherapy. So, you know, I, I've been in consultation with their oncologist about what would be the best chemotherapy. And that's that's been a good discussion because certain chemotherapies are very, very toxic to the peripheral nervous system. And they should be avoided, especially in people with hereditary neuropathies. And, and so that's another topic that's important. Um. Okay, treatment for neuropathy. Got any tricks up your sleeve these days? <laughs> um, well, first and foremost, establishing the cause uh, of sure. the neuropathy, you know, and that's extremely important, mainly because if there, if the neuropathy is due to something you're doing or it is due to some type of medical problem that you have, it should be identified because that medical problem uh, may be uh, amenable to treatment. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the to- uh, the medication may a uh, medication may be causing it, and removal of that medication may be helpful. So so really, a very good history, physical, laboratory analysis, EMG, extremely important. Uh, the neuropathies that are treatable are the inflammatory neuropathies. Uh, as you know, Tony, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy or CIDP. We always try to, you know, look for that early on because those patients respond to immunotherapy, prednisone, IV immunoglobulin, other medications. Uh, unfortunately, Tony, about 20% of people, despite an very, very uh, intense workup for neuropathy will still have a neuropathy of unclear etiology. And in those cases, we treat the symptoms. Uh, there are medications for neuropathic pain uh, that we use that are very, very helpful. Uh, medications. We could talk about medications. I'm still using amitriptyline, gabapentin, um, some nortriptyline, uh, occasionally Lyrica. Any other tricks? And the topicals. Do you find the topical? I, I'm still using topicals in some folks. What are you using? Um, you know, capsaicin or some of the compounded ones. Um, are you using anything different? I, I've had plus or minus success uh, with topicals. I mean, recently I've had patients tell me uh, that aspercream with lidocaine, which they can get over the counter, is helpful. Uh, and it's a fairly inexpensive over-the-counter treatment, which uh, I, I have patients try first, uh, especially if they don't want to take a systemic medication. But I'm like you, Tony. I, I start with low-dose medications that have a good safety profile. Amitriptyline is, a, in my opinion, a very good medication for neuropathy pain. 
Uh, gabapentin has a uh, is very good. It has a uh, its safety profile is very acceptable. Some of the newer meds, Lyrica, Cymbalta, uh, are helpful. Uh, I usually use them uh, later on in the course if I if I can't find uh, one of uh, the old standbys. Uh, if they don't work, I'll go to a more expensive or a newer medication. Diabetic neuropathy, probably the biggest cause of neuropathy that we see. Um, we tell patients, get control of your blood sugars, but often we see people who have excellent control of their blood sugars. They are not obese. Um, but what do you tell those patients? And I'm sure there are many listeners who are in that situation who have uh, diabetes and really take good care of themselves but still have uh, the neuropathy. What, what do you offer? Tony, I mean, most of those cases end up being painful sensory neuropathies, and uh, I think the medications that we use for neuropathic pain, whether you're using a topical or a FDA-approved medication uh, that they can take at nighttime, uh, they can be very, very effective. And, uh, you know, there's not much you can tell a patient with a diabetic sensory neuropathy who is you know, who has good weight control, good glucose control. I mean, they're doing everything right. It's some type of metabolic derangement that occurs in these patients because of the diabetes, even though the diabetes is under fairly good control. So uh, in those cases, we, we treat the, the pain symptoms, basically. Sounds great. I mean, if we could make some progress with that because it affects so many of our patients. Kevin, I want to take time to thank you again uh, for spending time with us today. Um, and really everything you do for our patients uh, with Lou Gehrig's disease and other neuromuscular diseases and your whole team at the Hospital for Special Care. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Tony. Next week on Healthy Rounds, uh, I'm going to be gone, actually. I'm going to be at the annual concussion meeting. It's a national meeting I was invited to uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, um, which always tells you something when a meeting is in Jacksonville, Florida in July. So it will be hot, but I will be down there uh, giving some lectures. Many thanks today to our studio producer. Joe's been on the board sitting in for Mike Ulko. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by going to registerme.org so that you can become an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.